Thursday edition, Locked On NBA. David Locke along with Ben Golliver coming to you here in May. We should be in the second round of the playoffs. I don't want to depress people. Who would be the who would be the final four teams in each conference, Ben Golliver? I mean, I feel like right now we should be discussing what Clippers versus Rockets and Lakers versus Nuggets, something like that. Oh, wait a sec. What about the Jazz? Who'd the Jazz lose to? Um, and the Rockets well, I guess the it depends sixth, on matchups. The if, they had, if they got Houston, I think Houston's probably taking care of them, don't you? The Rockets got the sixth seed, so the Rockets would have opened against Denver if we didn't play another game. But you're saying so? You're saying the Rockets upend the Jazz, the Thunder, or the Jazz, and the Nuggets beat the Thunder or the Jazz? Yeah, I mean, look, I love that Thunder story. If the Thunder was one of the Final Four teams, that would have been incredible. It's no disrespect to your Jazz. Um, I just got a little bit scared there by some of the, the peaks and valleys towards the end of the stretch. I mean, it feels like it's been like nine years since we've seen any basketball. So this is like, you know, really uh, forcing me to like, uh, you know, dig back into the memory banks. But I feel like Houston had enough of a matchup advantage. They could get through at least one round. Um, Denver, I know that they struggle with their own consistency issues. I guess there's just like a, a certain level of faith I have right now in Jokic as a, a central star that I'm not been against either one of the LA teams. So, that's where I'm at. Who are your final four? All right, so what's your East? Well, look, I mean, there's one team in the Eastern Conference we're talking about. That's Milwaukee. The other teams, who cares? I mean, I think Philly would have been flaming out by this point. We would have been having a great time, you know, writing, you know, which of their players that they need to trade. I think Toronto, you can go ahead and put them through. Boston, you could put them through. Um, who does that leave as the fourth team? Maybe Leaves Miami? Either Miami uh, beating Miami Philadelphia or-, or Miami beating Indiana. Yeah, I mean, Miami-Indiana would have been a really fun series, actually. But I, I, I think that if Miami had gotten Philly, Philly's out. Um, I think Philly's out no matter what. And honestly, they could have been out five games. You know, we're just getting the report right now that Ben Simmons is getting close to being ready to a return. So had he had to come back for the first round, he would have either been rushing it or he wouldn't have been available. And I think in that case, it could have gotten really, really ugly for them. All right, a lot of fun there. Just a thought for a second or two. Um, I would have gone... Um, I don't think I thought the Heat got better at the trade deadline like everybody else did, but Indiana was not right without Victor with Victor Oladipo. The only thing on Philadelphia that I do think, you know, they're twenty nine and two at home, so they, if they don't lose a home game, all they had to do is go grab one road game. Like I, I'm not sure I'm dismissing them quite as quickly as you would have, uh, but Milwaukee, Toronto, Boston, and I'll guess I'll go Duncan Robinson uh, with his purple cows um, <laughs> to advance. Lakers, Clippers, I completely agree. Um, I actually will say this. Um, Dallas is the team in the West that was way Ooh. better than anyone realizes. The way they're seated right now, they would have got the Clippers. But if Houston had continued their slide that they were on right before the break and Dallas had caught them for the sixth seed, I would have taken Dallas over Denver. I think Dallas was the most underrated team in the league, uh, particularly when you started playing around with their roster and looked at like who their playoff players would be. Their plus minus was amazing. Um, and I would take, I'll take the jazz over the thunder only because one of the greatest moments of my life was the jazz beating the thunder. And anytime the thunder lose, I'm happy and uh, I'm happier when the jazz win. 
I mean, the scary part is that we would have already also been just penciling in Lakers versus Clippers and circling that at this point, right? I mean, you didn't have anybody spoiling that matchup, did you? I don't think so. I don't think Dallas could have spoiled the Clippers. I don't think the Jazz could have outdone the Lakers. The only one I'd say is interesting um, a little bit on that is the way that somebody beats the the Clippers or the Lakers is a lead offensive performance, like... Um, they would have had to just, you know, somebody would have had to be totally great offensively. So is that Houston, if they had advanced with their small ball lineup, is that the jazz, which were the number one offense in all of the NBA after they acquired Jordan Clarkson? I, I don't know on that, but I, uh, is it Dallas who has historically the greatest offense of all time? Like, I think the only thing I think is interesting about that to the Clippers and Lakers is that there were three teams that they could have played. And frankly, Denver's offense is top 10 as well, all of which had, the single component you would have had to have to beat either of those two teams. No, I hear you. Now you're just making me sad, man. You're getting me a little bit misty over here, you know, thinking about all the what ifs. I mean, I'm wondering, is this like hypothetical Lakers Clippers playoff series, which had never happened before in the history of the franchises, had they met in the playoffs? Are we going to look at that? Yeah. It's like kind of a historical what if, um, you know, depending on what, you know, Le- LeBron looks like once they they get the season back on track, depending on, what happens with the Clippers who are now suddenly on kind of a time crunch um, given the short-term natures of, uh, you know, their moves last summer and then just not having, you know, Paul George and Kawhi Leonard locked up for that long, not knowing what's going to go on with Kawhi Leonard's health, probably losing Montrez Harrell, um, you know, to free agency at some point in the near future. To me, I mean, this could be like the kind of thing that we look back on and say, oh, man, that's the, you know, the greatest series that never was or something like that. You know what I mean? All right. So you and I prep this show and then I do that random start and we're on to a totally different level than we thought we were going to. So maybe that's the <laughs> essence of Ben and I talking. So I have a thought, though, that just came to my mind. So if the league doesn't play, it loses somewhere in the range of about three and a half billion dollars which Mm. is about 33% of their income, which means I don't know what happens to the cap, but you just mentioned the Clippers reduced time schedule. Like, has anyone analyzed what would happen if we lose like 30% of the cap on teams like the, is that an advantage or a disadvantage to the Clippers who like put all their eggs in this basket for this short little window? Does that make it better because they already have their eggs in the basket or do they end up in a terrible Balmer's not in a financial crutch, but does that mean Montrezl Harrell stays because there's no market at all? Does that mean he goes because they can't? I don't know. Like, what's your thought on? I hadn't even thought about right. this. Like, there's there's like all I, these crazy ramifications. On, yeah, I wrote on this a little bit briefly. It's not not to any degree, but I mean, they have different ways they could try to artificially inflate the cap so they could just agree with the players' union to keep it at the same level that it's at currently. If they lose as much money as we're talking about here, though, that starts to become very difficult. And the more that the cap shrinks, the, the teams that are favored are the teams with rich owners who are willing to just eat whatever the, re, the new luxury tax payments wind up being. So I think if you're the Clippers, you're actually okay because Ballmer has unlimited resources, right? If you're the Rockets and you're trying to build a, ro- a roster around two max level, super max level guys with Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and all of a sudden your owner is taking out crazy, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of loans at 13% interest rate because he's struggling financially. Now, all of a sudden things start to get really, really dicey. If you're getting pushed into the luxury tax territory, if you don't have any other cap flexibility, things start to look very different. So to me, the, the key takeaway is like the rich owners get richer, the poor owners get poorer if the salary cap drops. And there was an interesting little news note where the, 
You know, the San Antonio Spurs sold a minor, uh, uh, minority ownership piece the other day. I think that might become more and more common here in this economic st- uh, situation we're in right now. Well, for sure. I mean, it, it, especially if your owner, his his or her primary business is influenced in a major way by the coronavirus, or if the team is the family business, right? And so there's no other income coming in and you're relying upon the team and a television deal to kind of, you know, make ends meet. Um, those are situations where I think, you know, fan bases might want to get a little bit squirmy and wonder like what's going to happen here. Um, I do think that um, there would still be a lot of long-term interest to buy into the league. You know, I mean, the, the, the franchise values have been going up so much, you know, I don't know if they're going to stay up, quite as high as they have in these last couple of years, it feels like a little bit of a bubble, but at the same time, there's only 30 of them. It's a very proven economic model. At some point, life will get back to normal. People will go back to games and uh, you, know, you can kind of bank on the, on the television revenue to a certain degree too. So, I mean, to me, I think that there would still be a strong market of, of interested buyers. And honestly, there hasn't been that many teams changing hands here over the last five years compared to some other, uh, you know, time periods in recent history. So, uh, you know, you could also just make the argument, hey, like, you know, some people are just kind of due to, to turn their franchises over and and pursue other interests. Every Monday, Locked on NBA is doing a last dance postgame show. I host it on Monday along with John Corrales of Locked on Celtics, Matt Peck of Locked on Bulls, obviously, Anthony Irwin, Locked on Lakers, stop by, Alex Wolf, Locked on Knicks, stop by. So we had a huge, Doug Branson, Locked on Hornets. We had a huge group, kind of a round table, all sitting by what would be the corner bar, uh, if they were still open somewhere across the country and we didn't have to social distance reacting to post game, we'll do that every Monday, but we got into an interesting discussion about all of the stars that uh, Jordan was beating. And we'll talk about that with Ben Golliver wrote an interesting piece in the Washington post on Charles Barkley. When we continue today's show is brought to you in part by built bar. Have you tried built bar yet, Ben? I haven't, but I've been meaning to. All right, so Built Bar is revolutionizing bar taste. Ben's an athlete, runs, hikes. You go on those hikes, Ben, you have that bar in your pocket. It's you got to have the bottle of water with you. Also, it's grainy. It's not the greatest thing. Built Bar's changing that with amazing taste, two bars, and amazing flavors as well. If you like nuts, you got the peanut butter, the banana nut, bread, the German chocolate cake, the chocolate almond, and the numbers on it are amazing. The choc- the coconut almond has 130 calories, 18 grams of protein, and only 3 grams of sugar. Compare that to the most popular men's bar out there. Your calories would be up 140 more calories. Your fat grams would be up. Your carbs would be up 33. Your grams of sugar are 17 more, 21 instead of 4. So Built Bar's got incredibly healthy numbers for you and great flavors. If you're like me and have a nut allergy... Built Bar is amazing because they have an entirely nut-free facility for the nut-free bars. So you get the mint brownie delight, the double chocolate mousse, the coconut chocolate cream. It's all at BuiltBar.com with a promo code locked on. You get $10 off your first box. You can build your own box. You can get their mix box, whatever you want. It's at BuiltBar.com. Use the promo code locked on. So we were talking on the Lockdown NBA Monday edition, which is still available and timely if you're binge-watching Last Dance, you want to get a Last Dance postgame show, about Malone, Barkley, Drexler. Like, where do we put these guys in the list of great players that 
were vanquished by Michael Jordan because, like, are they all top 20 players in the NBA? Are they not top 20 players? Was Olajuwon the only other top 20 player of that era? Patrick Ewing to be mentioned in this group as well. Like, where do you put the legacy of these players who all seemingly were prevented from getting their their ring because of Michael Jordan or, you know, because maybe they, they, they were short a little bit? Yeah, it's a tricky question. I mean, to, to put a fine number on each one of those guys, I think what the, the key is you have to do it as an individual process. Like, I look at a Patrick Ewing, right, great player, very long career, great college career, an important figure in the 80s and 90s. But if I'm saying who are the best centers of that era, I go to Olajuwon and Robinson, and then obviously Shaq as well, before I go to Patrick Ewing. So I think that knocks him down a little bit on this overall ranking list for me. And kind of the same deal for a guy like Reggie Miller. I mean, we talk about him a lot because he's a media figure and he had those famous battles with Spike Lee and everything else. But to me, you know, he's definitely a couple of some of these other players that you mentioned. I think what's so fascinating about Charles Barkley's story is that he's actually kind of living his worst nightmare or like the one Achilles heel of his resume every single week on uh, inside the NBA gets kind of pushed into his face, right? Because he comes into the NBA at the exact same time as Jordan. He loses three times in the playoffs to Jordan. Uh, once he sort of become like, you know, in his prime uh, in the very early nineties and obviously with the 93 Suns and in, in the very memorable finals, he has an incredible 93 postseason, just putting up crazy numbers in elimination games, scoring 42 points in a finals game, just kind of doing it all. And yet Jordan's just, you know, a tick better. And that's all it takes for the Bulls to win that title. And then he never gets another shot. So he's sort of in this classic category of guys who never won it. Um, but not only that, he is now this big, easy target because he's on television constantly. And because he's so outspoken through his entire career that he's kind of become this polarizing presence where a lot of people want to take shots at him. So it's like, not only has he lost to Jordan and never got a second shot, but he has to be reminded of the fact that he has no rings by Shaquille O'Neal every single Thursday, like on Groundhog Day for the rest of his NBA existence. That's a pretty tough timeline. You know, like I actually have a a decent amount of sympathy for Charles Barkley, uh, you know, given uh, that track record that I just laid out. I think Barkley and Malone both make top 20. I think Olajuwon's borderline top 10. I don't know where we put Ewing on this list kind of in your Way I mean, do, do you put Dirk Nowitzki's got a ring? Does he go ahead of Malone and Barkley just because he has a ring? I, I hate to, to make it that simple. I do think that Dirk has so many incredible achievements over such a long career that uh, he's got a really strong argument over Barkley, like as it is. I mean, I think he just had a more stable narrative, uh, more winning seasons. With Barkley, there was a long you know, drop-off there in the late eighties with Philadelphia, where it's just a lot of squandered seasons where they didn't really go anywhere and win any playoff series. Right. Whereas with Dirk, you have multiple chapters of winning uh, multiple finals appearances, uh, you know, multiple, like really high regular season win total season. So I think I would tend to put him above Barkley. Now the Malone question is fascinating. And, and that's the trickiest one of all to me because he, he finishes so high on the the all-time scoring list, you know, one of the most reliable players in terms of durability that the game has ever seen. And yet to me, the the age-old question is, well, what is he without Stockton, right? Or if I had to choose one of those two guys to start a franchise, personally, I would choose Stockton. I don't know where you come down on that one, but that's that's the aspect that makes it so difficult to 
to grade uh, Carl Malone because the context that he played in was so important to his uh, his long-term success. I mean, honestly, it's a question I just think I've avoided ever answering because I lived it. I covered them. <laughs> I, you know, I, I grew up a fan of theirs. Then I covered them. I, I, I don't know that I have an answer. I mean, in the, you know, you, you like to be more sophisticated than this in some ways, but I mean, the mailman is the second all-time leading scorer in the NBA, right? Like, you never won a game because you had more assists than somebody else. Like, it helps, right? But the the, fi- the scoreboard's points. And I don't mean to be that simplistic, but, I mean, 14-time All-Star, 14-time All-NBA? Like, to me, that's it's pretty hard to overcome. Like, I really actually think one of the things when I look at greatest players of all time, and I do this, I really look at that All-NBA number. Like, I think that really matters because that's what you were in your era at your time. So somebody like Larry, who's 10 all-time NBAs, I'm not going to... That's due to injury, right? So I'm not going to knock that one down. But when someone like Mailman's 14-time All-NBA and then you get into first versus second team, I think that's one of the biggest things, you know analytics are funky. I'll give you a number here in a second about eras that are just stunning. I don't want to derail our conversation on it, but that's kind of what I like, you know, like I go back to like, and I can use this. Someone's like, Oh, you're being a jazz Homer. I actually can use the same note as a negative on John. So I think John only has like one stock that I'm speaking of only has one or two years in his entire NBA career where he's first team all NBA because of magic. Now it's, Mm-hmm. that's tough and crappy that you play at the same time as magic. But I think that that says something to me a little bit that, you know, for your 16 times you were all league, you were first team only twice. And they're both the years where magic didn't play. Otherwise John's second team all league, like every year Malone's first team NBA every single year. Yeah. I do think that the scoring part probably helped him. Don't you think he was regularly among the scoring leaders? So when voters are filling out their ballots, I mean, those are the first names that they're going to go to um, a lot of the time. So it's like that same argument that you raised is probably getting reinforced with every single one of those cycles. Let me throw you a a question. And just like, you know, this is more of like a philosophy question than anything, but would you rather be Malone and Stockton who got the second chance in the finals against Jordan, but obviously it was like a heartbreaking defeat, gutting defeat, you know, famous jumper, you know, right in Brian Russell's face and all that. Or would you rather be Barkley, who only had to lose once to Jordan, but never got the second shot, and he's trying to do the ring-chasing thing down the road to kind of make up for it? Like, wh- like who is more tortured, you know, Malone and Stockton or Barkley? I think Malone and Stockton have much more uh, of a legacy of, stack- of of accomplishments and big wins. I mean, Barkley's game seven against Seattle is one of the most epic performances of all time. I'm not sure that Carl or John has a performance to match that John's game four against the bulls in the finals of the first time they matched might be his, his comparable performance. Um, so individual one game, willing a team to win. I think Barkley has that, but I, I think I would, I would rather be Stockton and Malone cause they're both tortured and Malone's got more, uh, you know, kind of moments, moments in time. Let, let, let me, let me give you this note on these guys. Let, let me make sure we clarify something about the guys we're talking about. So like, I don't have the number in front of me, but like the number of 2010 games and like, I can pull it up in a second. And of the John Carl Malone had in his career are like, so incredible. The guy averaged a double du- 20 and 10 double, double 
for nine straight seasons and then did it at 11th <laughs> time. I mean, like, and the two where he didn't were 9.8 and 9.9. Like, okay. And we're like, well, we're in a triple-double era. But let's make sure we understand what we're talking about. And I'm cherry-picking certain games because I just happened to look at them recently. But let's go to Jazz Bulls, NBA Finals, Game 4, first time they matched to the Finals. So this is 96-97. Okay? Game 4. How many possessions do you think were in that game? Oh, man. Uh, no idea offhand. Sorry. The pace of play in game four. Now, let me make sure everybody knows reference point here. The league this year is at a hundred. The average possessions per game, a hundred, maybe 102, depending whose numbers you use. Game four of the 97 finals, the last dance year before the last dance, 79 possessions. Oh, my God. When you were talking, I was going to guess, like, 90. That's crazy. 79 possessions. Okay. Like, oh, well, that was a weird... That, that's what the game was then. This, today, I happened to be looking at uh, a, a, a game in which Carlos Boozer had a great game. So, let's move it ahead. 10 years to the 06-07 Game 7 Jazz Rockets first round. 80 Five possessions. Like, the numbers that our guys, as much as we love Harden and Westbrook and Steph and, you know, LeBron, like, they're playing 20% more possessions per game to get these numbers right now. Okay, so if the argument for Malone is that his numbers held up, I don't even know what we're. Ar- slower- I don't even know what we're yeah. arguing, by the way. But that's we, the argument absolutely can continue because any sports argument right now is awesome. <laughs> right, right, right. No, no, no. Yeah, I guess I meant. Sorry, the case for Malone is that he has these monster, consistent numbers across multiple eras that that hold up even at a much slower time period. Right. So his impact on the game is probably greater than even his per game box scores would indicate from the late nineties. And so maybe that's your argument for putting Malone over Barkley. When you look at Dirk, he didn't really have the 2010 seasons, but he was darn close a bunch of times, lots of 29s. Uh, you know, he mixed in three, three assists here every once in a while, obviously not the greatest defensive reputation, but he also gets the benefit of being on really high level team offense efficiency numbers, you know, throughout a lot of his career. If you had to go Dirk versus Malone, are you still going Malone? The title feels like it's a big deal. I think I'm going Malone. But I... Mm. And I'm going Dirk over Barkley. But I think I'm going Malone over Dirk. But I... Like... But it could be like... Right? Like, I mean, I could be... Like, I could be... I don't know. Like, I think it's a really interesting debate. Like, Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that Dirk has going for him, too, obviously, is also just a monster career point total number, two. So he's at, like, 31,500. So he's not where Malone is. But that huge advantage that Malone has a lot of, over a lot of his contemporaries just by virtue of playing so much longer at such a higher level than a lot of other guys from that era I, is negated a little bit because Dirk did hold on for so long. If I told you that Carl Malone 
had more than two times the amount of 2010 games that Dirk Nowitzki did. Would that matter to you? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I feel it's a little bit arbitrary with the 2010, um, but uh, your point is well taken. I mean, look, he was, like I said at the start, it was like the most reliable guy ever. You knew exactly what you were going to get from him every single night. Um, and for 20 years, you know, or, or 18 what years, whatever doing? it was. And there aren't very many guys like that. And I think in historical debates, just in general, stepping away from this one specifically, I think the consistency and longevity factor gets underrated and the peak play of a guy winds up being a little bit overrated. Uh, if that makes sense. Like I think that, um, you know, sometimes we remember players at their very best moments because they broke through and they won MVP and finals MVP and everything else, but maybe it didn't last for, you know, uh, the full 15 year career. Maybe their window was, was five years. And I think when you're really weighing these things, the, the longevity factor should, uh, you know, benefit certain guys. Like for example, you know, classic case is uh, Tim Duncan. I mean, to me, the longevity factor for him vaults him way up, you know, into that top 10 conversation. Whereas I think a lot of people might say, okay, well, they never won two titles back to back, or he never had that like 30 points per game season, or, uh, you know, the other things that people might use to knock him relative to other famous big guys, like say a Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, I, to me, the consistency and the longevity should get uh, more attention than they do. I'm with you on Duncan. By the way, just to wrap that up, Carl Malone, 700, these 2010 is arbitrary, but so is our triple-double obsession we have now. Uh, Carl <laughs> Malone, 706 games in his career of 2010, next closest in NBA history, 101 games behind him is Shaq at 605, then Olajuwon at 560, Barkley at 507, Duncan at 498. Dirk was all the way down to 324. Maybe the most incredible number of this group to me is LeBron James, who's basically a point guard, is 16th all-time in the history of the game at 20 points, 10 rebound games. Hey, while we're discussing these guys, can I just ask you an honest question? I'm curious for your answer. What held back Malone and Stockton from making a finals before they did? given that they were like really high level all NBA type players well before 97, like what were the, what was the biggest factors in your view that, so there, that held them back? Was it supporting two, cast or what was it? There's two things here. I think one is, I think that's, um, I think that's the criticism, right? I think that's what prevents them from being top 10 players. Um, I think, uh, you know, they went to the conference finals in, in their peak uh, they went to the conference finals five times in seven years, making mm. the finals twice. Um, and then a guy named Olajuwon got him, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Olajuwon, Olajuwon's the best jazz team, arguably was the 94-95 team. They won 60 games, and Akeem Olajuwon knocked him out of the first round of the playoffs. Yeah, and that's a, just a really tough matchup for them, you know, given their other personnel. So, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know really. I mean, it's a tough matchup for anybody, but especially for for that team that's kind of built around that power forward spot rather than, you know, having like a super high-level center to throw at a, a large one. We, yeah. We got well, long in that. The debate really got down to it. We'll answer it when we come back, and then I, I have a, another conversation I quickly want to have with you. Uh, two others, if we have time. Uh, the debate really was how many players – from that Jordan era, we're actually top 20 players in the NBA. Elijah one's 
probably a top 10. How many other were top 20? And that's what we kind of left at. I'll, I'll, we'll get a quick answer. We continue. Blinkist is one of the most unique things out there. The other day I was out hiking the mountains and I wanted to uh, catch a little knowledge. So I went to Daniel Pink's uh, book about motivation and how did I do it? I went to Blinkist. I got the whole book in 15 minutes. That's right. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to. I get it. Like there's a whole book out there. There's a lot of whole books I want to read. I'm not going to get to all of them. So I'd rather get 15 minutes condensed of it and learn a little bit something. If it's How Champions Think in Sports and Life by Dr. Bob Rotella, that'd be great. Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week, that's great. Maybe I just want the 15 minutes of a coming by Michelle Obama. They're all there at Blinkist. You can go to Blinkist.com right now and go to Blinkist.com slash MBA and start a free seven-day trial. Also, you save 25% off when you sign up for Blinkist. It's Blinkist.com slash NBA, an unlimited access to read or listen to, a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all at Blinkist.com slash NBA. All right, so what's the final verdict, Ben? Malone's okay, top so I'm gonna 20? Say, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm saying Ewing is out of top 20. Okay. I'm saying Stockton is, is probably out of top 20. I'm saying Barkley is very borderline. It's super close. I guess he's going to be in, but just barely. And then I think Malone is in. And I also think, obviously, you mentioned Elijah one. He's in. Is David Robinson in, too? I think he might be. I think if Robinson's in, Barkley's out. Like, there's just a certain okay. numbers game. Like, you can't have all of them, right? Right. Yeah, those, those two would be pretty close to me. I guess I would take Robinson over Barkley because of the, the titles. Um, so if, if Robinson's in, that may push Barkley up, but we've got a bunch of younger guys now coming up too. Like, what do you do with Kevin Durant? I mean, I feel like he's, well, he's top, top 20, 20 already, right? Yeah, he's t- no question. No question. He's top 20, uh, Steph Curry's yeah. top 20, right? No, like I mean, we're going to run out of spots here at some point. Uh, I thought there was a great piece this week. I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Paolo wrote it over at the ringer about the, the next Jordans. And he actually had a great note about the 2008 was the first time that the, there were more mentions of the next LeBron than the next Jordans. Uh, and 2009 was the first time there were, I think it was the next Kobe's rather than the next uh, Jordans mentioned. Uh, I thought that was a great piece. What I thought was really interesting was not the guys, you know, Grant Hill, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant are the obvious ones that were like the next Jordans and most mentioned. And Grant Hill was really far closer to it than I think anybody really realizes. I thought it was the next tier guys, not Harold Miner and Felipe Lopez busts, but Jerry Stackhouse, Vince Carter, Ray Allen, Dwayne Wade, Penny Hardaway, kind of like those are five players who, while never became the Jordans, certainly had an incredible impact on the way the league kind of played. And, and, and Jordan had that impact. For sure. I mean, and like the range of their careers is just amazing. Like getting hit with that label, it could make you somebody that's completely forgettable and never makes the NBA all the way up to Vince Carter, those guys had this incredible 20-year career, all the way up to Kobe and LeBron, who are, you know, in the conversation for what, uh, you know, LeBron's, you know, usually considered uh, Jordan's biggest rival for the, the greatest of all time. And, you know, Kobe's generally considered one of the top 10 or 15 players of all time. So that label, which I do think, um, you know, for people like Harold Miner, I think in the article, Paolo mentioned how, you know, people around Harold Miner, like his college coach, looked at that label almost like a death sentence. And in fact, like some of those guys wore that label pretty well and had a lot of uh, longstanding success. 
To me, though, when I think of the next Jordan, uh, the first couple names that pop up, first of all, it's always Harold Miner. Baby Jordan, I, always, I felt like that was just an indelible nickname that will always stick with me. So if somebody says next Jordan, he's the guy I think of before anyone, which is you know kind of hilarious considering that he basically flamed out uh, other than the slam dunk contest. But the guy who I was actually convinced at the time had the, the chance to be kind of the successor to Michael Jordan as the face of the league, as the marketing guy, you know, it wasn't Kobe, it was Grant Hill. I don't know how you felt on that, but you know, there was a short window there in the mid nineties where he was putting up advanced stats that were like top 10 seasons of the decade. I mean, like really, really impressive all around advanced stat production. Of course, the injuries got to him and, and everything else. And he was able to, you know, extend his career, have second and third chapters with various teams. And but he never really reached the, the peak that everybody thought he would be able to sustain. But of all the names mentioned, I always thought he was going to be the, the successor to Jordan. Like once, once Jordan retired, it was going to be his league. I, I thought that uh, Grant, I agree on Grant Hill. And I think if people go back and, and look at, you know, I, I would actually say that this is one of those things kind of to our point where I, I think we've forgotten how good some of these players are. Grant Hill's one that actually may at this point be mentioned enough. Uh, but like Jerry Stackhouse averaged 30 points a game one year. And again, in an era that was slow, Grant Hill talking about our 2010 kind of stuff, his second year in the league, he was 20 points, 9.8 rebounds and seven assists and a steal. Like he was great. Mm. Um, So I'm with you on Grant Hill. He also had that persona. The one that I actually think may have taken the most from Jordan is Ray Allen. Cause while he was never that player and he was just a, became, you know, a great shooter in Milwaukee and some is he took the whole off court persona became Jesus Shuttlesworth was a jump man client really took kind of everything about Jordan with him. Yeah. And just like that cold blooded assassin too. And like the guy who you were scared to have the ball in his hands late in games. I mean, it wasn't always the, you know, the one-on-one isolation turnarounds, but I mean, anytime the ball got kicked to him, even late in his career, you know, the opposing fan base is going to gasp like, Oh God, what's about to happen to us. Right. So um, I could see that one too. I mean, Dwayne Wade along those same lines, when he was first coming up, I felt like, you know, there used to be like, who's more like Jordan, you know, Kobe or Dwayne Wade, or even like LeBron or Dwayne Wade. And it always did feel like Wade's mentality style of play was a lot closer to a young Jordan than LeBron from an aesthetic standpoint ever was. Right. Uh, I think so. And, you know, he single-handedly wills his team to a championship in this mix, which we don't have anybody. Right. And when, right. And when that happened, you're thinking like, Oh wow, the sky's the limit. Is this going to be the next guy too? So, you know, I think, um, you know, way the knee caught up to him, I think, and, and obviously teaming up with LeBron kind of changed his narrative so that, like, that no longer became possible for him. But you know, he was another guy where, you know, there was real serious, you know, young Jordan flashes. Like, when I was watching uh, The Last Dance, the highlights from, like, that mid-'80s time period where, you know, Jordan's, like, even, like, the Doug Collins years, but even before the Doug Collins years, and he's just going downhill constantly um, and just putting a lot of pressure on you to defend him or foul him. Um, I did see a lot of Dwayne Wade vibes, you know, to that, uh, that, that era of his career. Of course, he became a little bit more of a technician later in his career. And he's kind of like thinking the game and, you know, maybe not quite, you know, the same degree of athleticism by the time they're, they're getting into like 96, 97, 98, but that early version had a lot of parallels. Uh, final thing. I want to give a shout out to one other person. I think it was Tom Ziller wrote about, uh, all the American players that play in Europe, um, 
and they're probably not names we know well, but many of them would be what? 9, 10, 11, 12 on an NBA roster at this point, kind of 25, 27 year olds who make more money by being, and maybe they'd be, you know, yeah, nine through 12 on your roster. So they might be a rotation player. They might not. Um, when you look at those players and, and we don't need to get all their names, but the idea that they might not go back to Europe, this could dramatically change the way NBA rosters look. Well, yeah, it could really drive down the price for some free agents in this next cycle, right, too, because there's just more competition. It's like a classic thing of supply and demand. If uh, you have all these other guys coming through who are uh, you know, feeling like they have no other option going overseas, and so now they're here, you know, they're going to be willing to kind of settle for maybe a lower-cost contract than they would have in other circumstances. I think that that could definitely – you know, kind of quote-unquote flood the market here. I- I'm curious on this issue, though, because another big theme from that, that late 90s time period is, like, the impact of expansion and, like, watering down the talent and all of that. Um, when you start to look at the NBA's current moves where they're expanding the G League, where they're trying to get these high school players in the pipeline early, where they're, you know, offering them money straight out of high school and everything else, it's been an awful long time since they've added or subtracted teams, um, you know, more than a decade are we reaching a point where, you know, maybe more of these players are going to stick around the United States rather than playing, uh, you know, overseas? Are you, is, is there any sense for you that, like, we're ready to expand oh as gosh, a league? Or so do you think ready. that the, the talent is already diluted? Or what do you think? No, we're so ready to expand. Oh, my gosh. Ooh. So we're overloaded with talent compared to where the league's ever been before. One, since our last expansion, which has been many, many, many years back, it was the Bobcats, right? Like, it's a long time ago. It's the longest run we've had without expansion. Since the expansion, we've had the international explosion, which has added, what, three or four players to every roster. We had Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant, the number one athlete in the world other than Tiger Woods has been an NBA player for this whole entire time, meaning that all the greatest athletes in the world, are, if they hit the height requirement, are playing basketball. We have more talent than we've ever had before. We've had less expansion. We are, It would have almost no impact to the league. It's how you equalize the East versus the West, is you expand to 32 and put the two expansion teams in the West. And may I suggest Vancouver and Seattle while we're at it. Get us 32 teams. <laughs> play your in-tournament seasons now you have 16 team tournaments you can play you have 18 tournaments you can play you can have four teams tournaments the only reason we haven't done is because the tv money got so big that no owners wanted to divide it by two more teams and the expansion fees got so large for that and because we like to have seattle sitting out there to make inglewood give steve Ballmer a new arena but we are more ready for expansion than we've ever been the 10th 11th and 12th and 13th guys on every roster could play legitimate minutes in the nba well, let me tie together a couple of our conversations then. If we're ready for it from a talent perspective, and we said earlier that there's some owners that could be hurting for money because of uh, the current coronavirus crisis, could they expand and use those expansion fees to help prop up some of these current owners uh, and maybe help them prevent you know, from needing to selling their teams? You know, in other words, would some owners who are on some harder times right now financially be more interested in the idea of expansion because it could mean a real cash infusion straight to them, uh, you know, vis-a-vis the expansion fee. I hear a Washington Post column from Ben Golliver materializing <laughs> at the end of a Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. Make sure you catch Ben Golliver in the Washington Post. You can also get his newsletter by going to Ben Golliver on Twitter. His pinned tweet will get you that sign-up for that. 
as well. Thursday edition, Chad Ford's incredible NBA draft coverage continues to tell your smart device to play Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. I'm David Locke. He's Ben Golliver. This is Locked on NBA. Anthony and Adam are with you tomorrow. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes. Follow on Spotify. Leave a review if you want to say how great you think Ben Golliver is. Have a wonderful day and thanks for tuning in.